the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We're at episode 381. I'm your host, Paul Spain. I'm Ed McKnight. I'm Brendan Ritchie. Welcome along. Thank you guys for uh, for joining the show this week. Thanks, Paul. Thanks now, for having us. It's... Uh, Ed, it's not your first. Uh, it's not your first rodeo. It's but, not uh, my first rodeo. You know, that's the second time somebody said that to me over the last about three weeks. <laughs> you know, I feel like a bit of Wild West movie or something along those lines. Yeah, well, um, maybe it's that cowboy hat. Actually, we can't get away with tricking people because we are live on video. There are always a few people that are curious to uh, to see what's happening and uh, catch in when we do the Facebook live stream. So for our audio listeners, if you are kind of curious what, what we look like, uh, paulspain.com, actually facebook.com uh, slash, we're probably actually up on slash NZ Tech Podcast. Um, I'm not always Nailing quite uh, familiar with exactly where we're, where we're streaming, um, but we should be up on, up on there uh, from time to time. So welcome to have a look and, and greetings to uh, those that are catching the, uh, the, the live stream today. Now, um, Ed, remind listeners where you fit into this world of podcasting and technology. Yeah, sure. So uh, in my spare time, I run the NZ Young Professionals podcast, and uh, that's that's all about young people things, I guess, and uh, business and things like that. And then on my day-to-day, I run the strategy side at a little digital agency called Hatch, doing things like business automation and things like that. Cool. What's the cutoff for the age, uh, the young I always say 32 is, mm. is the kind of young professionals thing. But having said that, I was once, when I was, I used to be the president of Auckland Young Professionals and we had somebody bring along their dad that day and I think he might have been in his late 70s and I thought that was kind of cool, mm. you know. You can be accounted as a young professional if you want to. Yeah, I probably don't make the cut, but that's okay. Uh, I, uh, in, in terms of what I do, uh, I live on the Gold Coast. I hit up uh, Business and Channel Operations for Lawa, which is a telco. And I'm in Auckland today doing this. Well, it's great, great mm. to have you on the show, Brendan. Thanks Thank for, for uh, joining us. It was good of you to make some, uh, some extra time in your schedule to, to come and chat. Now, look, there's always lots and lots going on in the tech world. Uh, but this week, a few topics I wanted to talk through. Um, SpaceX and what they're up to with satellites. And we've been hearing for a little while uh, around this concept of low uh, lower orbit satellites to deliver internet to the whole globe. There's also some other variations on that, Google, Google Loon and so on. So we're going to dive in and talk about that. Um, Huawei have taken a bit of a, a attention um, from for... Um, those interested in the newest gadgets with their new uh, smartphone that was just announced last week, and it has three cameras. So we're going to dive in and uh, just have a little little chat about that. Um, I do want to talk around a few things happening in the autonomous uh, car world, of which there just seems to be all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, a little bit uh, of New Zealand uh, news. Uh, Vocus fits, fits in there. They've been uh, been up for sale for for a little while, so I'm you know kind of curious. Um, Brendan, you're uh, you're often blogging around uh, things happening in the telecommunications world. So I love a blog. I'm very interested to hear some of your opinions because 
usually pretty opinionated, I've got to say, when I read your blog posts. Uh, um, they can be quite polarizing, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> kind of curious to see uh, to see how you want to stir things up today or not. Um, and uh, yeah, to hear a little bit about uh, you know, Lightwire, which you've, you've been with now for the past eighteen months. So a few things there. Um, there's also a new DNS service. One dot one dot one dot one. Was that four ones? I hope so, because uh, otherwise that wouldn't wouldn't be a valid IP address. Um, anyone that hasn't heard about it, and uh, you're sitting in front of a computer at the moment, you can always go and have a look, and uh, you'll you'll be up with the play before we get to that part of the show. Uh, but look, let's uh, let's jump in. Um, SpaceX and low um, um, low Earth sort of satellite. Um, satellites um, or low low orbit, low Earth orbit. I think I've got that right. Yeah, I? Yeah. Oh, I get mixed yeah. up with all these uh, uh, terms some uh, some days. But uh, look, they they've been talking about this new uh, service, uh, Starlink uh, project now for uh, for a while. Um, they have gained um, FCC approval, which is the um, Federal Communications uh, Commission uh, in in the US. Um, so that's just another another step forward for them. What they're looking to do is put into orbit 4,425 satellites is the current uh, number um, that are going to be um, in the range of sort of a, a 1,100 to 1,300 uh, kilometres up. And the, the idea is that this would actually be a, a competitor to a lot of other internet uh, connectivity options uh, that people have um, today. So when we think of uh, satellite-based internet communications at the moment, we think of things that are, you know, really slow and sort of high latency. So you know, lots of things that probably wouldn't work very well. Uh, for, you know, for instance, um, you know, Skype voice, video communications, uh, gaming and so on. They're talking about a latency um, potentially as low as 25 milliseconds, which uh, that number won't mean um, much to, to some, I know, but uh, that, uh, what would you say, Brian, that sort of is similar to what people get on, a, on say, an ADSL internet connection um, I guess the question to, there is today from from where to where, but yeah, well, um, and it and it depends on where you where you're linking up to in terms yeah, of base stations good, and, right? and, and other things. Um, I mean, to to give a comparison, when I tried um, when I checked what the um, the latency was or ping time is sometimes referred to on a uh, on a flight uh, recently. It was around one thousand milliseconds, which is about a th- you know one, one second basically. Mm. Um, Did notice that, and and you know that that makes it not really much use for say you know a, a Skype call and 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 the like. Um, and the performance was was uh, you know pretty shocking. So if they can work out a way to deliver this sort of consistency on a consistently on a global basis, um, it could be really interesting, depending. Of course, on other factors in terms of speed and you know how they actually hook it up around the world, mm. uh, but there are parts of the world at the moment that don't have the best of internet. Uh, Brendan, have you sort of given much thought to how this this could fit in? You know, working in that world of telecommunications, being a, mm. an internet mm. service provider as, as as part of what you do, 
have you given some thought to where this could could fit, particularly in Australia, because your you know, you, your um, company provides service here in New Zealand as well as Australia, New Zealand or pre- and Australia. Yeah, Majority so the Australian still, market yeah. would be kind of an interesting one for. Well, so MBN's uh, already launched their own satellites. They've got two fairly um, high capacity satellites. I think with about sixty four gigabits per second capacity each, which is just lots of bandwidth. Um, compare that to Farmside, a, a local ISP. They've got their satellite up at. Um, it's just a fraction of that in terms of the capacity. But uh, most of the knowledge I have in this space is from a video uh, put up on YouTube by NZ Nog where John Brewer um, got up and, and spoke. And he's just uh, probably the smartest guy around as far as satellite technology goes. And, um, you know, there's there's always there's been satellites for a long time, but there's three different bands that they can essentially use. And the traditional one was the the, the C band, um, and that would be what Farmside, I believe, is using. Then there's the KU and KA. Not to get too technical, but the key thing is that the new bands, KU and KA, they are faster. And if you use the KU, it's less susceptible to rain fade. So if the weather's terrible, your speeds are, are not hampered as much as with the older or the even faster newer fancier ka version so that's that's the the reason why it's quite exciting in terms of speed is the band they're using the size of the satellites the number of satellites the number of base stations and the distance being reduced from earth to the users uh, in terms of relay drops that that ping time as well so it's more usable it's faster the faster it is the more uh, I guess the the bigger the the niche for it to fit in because it's not simply where there's no other options. It might be that there's an option, but this is actually better. But then the big unknown is what are the data plans and what's the price? And those are the two key intangibles of what we don't currently know and, and that'll dictate how popular it is and if it's used anywhere other than where it's the only option. Yeah, I mean, you, you would imagine with the amount of satellites they're talking putting up, and, and I can't remember the... Um, the exact stats, but I remember we talked about this before, and the number of satellites that they're talking of putting up, I think, is more than the total satellites that that exist in orbit today. So it, it's phenomenal. And there's they... also number of other companies that have um, that have had FCC approval um, as well. OneWeb, Space Norway, uh, Telesat, um, to do something similar. So. You know, the sky could be absolutely littered with. I was going to ask, um, at what point does real estate, yeah, run out? (laughs) Is is there a limit? I think the sky is probably pretty big. Yeah, but at what Um, point do they hit each other? I think (laughs) the sky's the limit. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, nicely done. I think Um, one of the best parts of this, though, is. that communications when there are emergencies will still be up. I was at a, a breakfast with Michael Sturtz, who is the director of uh, or the head honcho at Google X a little time ago, and this is at the Institute of Directors a couple of um, months ago. And he was talking about that when there were um, major earthquakes in South America, they just changed the height of their balloons, um, had the the air currents pushed them over to the right parts of the earth, and the communications were still live in, in places where the tr- traditional infrastructure had gone down. So, right. I mean, this, this, this is, is where the like Google learned technology yeah that's yeah. right yeah. so this uh, it's quite exciting for those kinds of uh, the emergency situations where typical infrastructure would fail us wow there's also um again i'm, I'm taking this from uh, john brewer's presentation but the the fact that there's 
technology now where uh, these satellites are able to communicate with so many base stations, even weather can be avoided as an issue. You can essentially choose which base station to communicate with based on the weather in that location. So, you know, while you can also mitigate the impact the weather has on satellite feeds based on the band that's in use, you can, well, there's certain providers that are looking to differentiate their service based on getting around weather completely. So it's, it's a really interesting space and it's certainly not the you know, slow, useless, tiny upload service it, it, it was perceived to be in a short period of time, I think we're going to find that it's got a place alongside, you know, 4G and copper in certain communities. Mm. Well, I, I think um, we're, we're in quite a good position here in New Zealand with, you know, the state of the ultrafast, um, mm. you know, broadband that, you know, that continues to roll out. I think the last number, and, you know, Brendan, I'm sure you're uh, across this, the last number I can recall was they were talking, um, you know, with the most recent, Updates to you know, coverage. They're going aiming to hit something like eighty-seven percent of the population mm. with with fibre in in New Zealand now, which is you know quite a big jump from uh, uh, you know where it was initially, and you know hitting some pretty small uh, population bases ar- around the country. And look, you know, there's a potential maybe for that to grow, uh, you know, e- e- even further. Um, yeah, we we end up in a quite good position when you've basically got. A whole bunch of competing options. So, look, if fibre's the uh, you know the best thing for you uh, and it's available, then you can go for that. But in the future, we'll have you know five G uh, networks, and then you know potentially offerings from SpaceX, OneWeb, etc. Uh, you know, then uh, that just creates a, a really good uh, competitive environment and. You know, I'm sure the more competition there is, the more pressure this will put on uh, on fibre uh, operators to make sure that you know, yes, theirs has been really expensive to roll out, but they'll want to make sure they have mm. a big, big customer base for a long time to come. So yeah. uh, we should be in a pretty good position yeah. here in New Zealand. I would, I would tend to think. Well, you know, Lightwire, um, the brand that, that that I'm representing, we we have five thousand connected endpoints on our wireless network. Now that wireless network has to continually increase its speed and capacity in light of new challenges, and that might be increased fiber rollout or four G rollout or RBI two. But it's certainly going to start to include things like satellite connectivity, which is improving all the time. But I think uh, outside of New Zealand, uh, the concept of, of remote locations, um, islands in Indonesia, um, Pacific Islands that are poorly connected at the moment, the development and educational opportunities that are going to be made more available by this technology is is fantastic so yeah well it's interesting because we i know we talked um la- la- last year and uh yeah we probably put a little bit more focus on it because i spent a little bit of time in uh in the cook islands <laughs> and um it, w- it was interesting there i visited the local um you know telecommunications provider blue sky and you know had a little bit of a look at how they were doing things and really their only connection into the country is a big you know, satellite dish at their um, well, yeah, I think you know one one primary big satellite dish in uh, in Rarotonga, and um, that's their link to the outside world. And of course, you know, slow, you got latency, and and so on. And then um, a little while after my visit, that they got hit with a um, a fire, and that basically destroyed a whole lot of stuff. So yeah, you know, the if you if you turned up there with your um, 
mobile phone and hoping to have you know roaming communications and things like that then you know a whole lot of that was down um they weren't able to i think set up new accounts so if you had an existing sim card that was on a you know on an account then you're away but there were there were other limitations so um yeah th- those sort of locations are going to be much better served when you've got this option Plus, potentially they'll they'll get fibre, and I, you know I know they were uh, originally looking at, at doing some sort of tie-in, maybe with the um, uh, Hawaii cable. Um, so yeah, those sort of locations yeah. are, are going to be uh, much much better off once they actually have some choices, rather than you know basically you know maybe one option in some cases at the moment. Yeah, and then this type of infrastructure also has implications for the, the likes of remote working. So you know, if you've got people, say, in the Cook Islands that now have access to better internet, there's no reason that either our employees couldn't move to the Cook Islands, have a wonderful lifestyle and work remotely from there, or that there are people who otherwise might not be employed in these remote locations who actually can work remotely, and then business owners can have access to that that um, that resource relatively cheaply. Yeah, well, it's just hugely expensive over there. If you want to sit and watch Netflix or you know even YouTube um, in the in the Cook Islands, then uh, you know you you you've got to be somewhat wealthy. I would yeah. I would say because I'm trying to remember what the plans were, but it was, you know it was something like um, yeah fifty dollars for you know two gigs of data or something. Oh it was uh, uh, you know worlds apart from what we we're used to. Yeah, here in, in New Zealand, that's for sure. So um, I think Vodafone charged me thirty five dollars for two gigs of data the other day. Actually, when I went over my plan, so hmm. yes. So well, there's, yeah. There's 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 always opportunities for telcos to um, you know to make to make a dime. One last uh, thing on that would just be that uh, the. Uh, ability for employers to get staff to work in remote locations is often dependent on good internet access. I know recently I've had some uh, some interactions with businesses in remote locations where they've got um, you know, people working on farms or agribusiness who just they've got staff up in arms about the fact they've got no decent connectivity and mm. nowadays mm. it's just not really viable for young people to go work somewhere where they're isolated physically but also you know socially on the internet they've got no interaction. So Again, my, my guess is that that's not going to be a long-term problem with these sorts of advancements. Mm, mm. I mean, it certainly can be nice getting, uh, getting disconnected and offline for, for a little while. Uh, but in terms of as, as a lifestyle choice, I think uh, it's probably going to become uh, more and more niche, shall we, yeah. shall we say. Uh, we've got expectations like we do around having electricity, right? It's, uh, it's something we take for granted. Yeah, it's now. a utility. Yeah. Now, um, last week, I, well, we knew this was coming, but Huawei announced their new uh, phones, the, uh, the P20, P20 Pro. Now, this uh, sits sort of a step down from their, um, their mate range. And, uh, you know, it was uh, late last year they announced their Mate 10 and Mate 10 uh, Pro, which yeah, pretty high end, pretty capable uh, handsets. Um, but now they've announced the uh, the P twenty and the P twenty Pro. And look, this is still uh, nearly two weeks away from launch in New Zealand. And I'll get to um, you know have a have a bit of a look at at these. Um, uh, I think tomorrow actually. So haven't had hands on yet, but it's been really interesting just looking at some of the media coverage around the world because this uh, P20 Pro from Huawei is the first uh, phone that I can think of anyway that's got uh, three cameras on on the rear of it. 
and look, they seem to be doing some pretty impressive stuff. What's that? Y3. Y3. So um, they've had for a while, they've put, you know, two two cameras on the back, a uh, black and white one and a color one, the, you know, the black and white able to, um, you know, help on the contrast perspective. Um, yeah, num- number of aspects of, of how that can be utilised, but basically by putting putting these together and a bit of AI, they seem to be uh, just looking at at, at, at some of the initial uh, reviews online, delivering what would appear to be the best camera uh, or the you know the best output for for a range of tests that we've you know compared to anything else that we've seen um, you know from from rivals such as Apple and, and Samsung now look these things are very much in the eye of the beholder and I wouldn't be saying throw out your other phones right now and uh, uh, and necessarily jump to the uh, Huawei uh, because it'll depend on how you use a phone and what you're looking for one thing I like though is they've got a uh, three times zoom lens, and I'm a big fan of having zoom lenses on a uh, on a phone. Uh, it's one of the reasons I've been um, uh, using Samsung's um, S9 Plus because it's got that two times zoom lens. Uh, the same same thing with the um, iPhone uh, 10. Yeah, I find that is is really handy, sort of you know capability having that in a, in a phone. It's one of the things I, I miss. We're not carrying around a big camera, but look, most of us don't want to carry around a big camera all the time. Um, so yeah, that um, that that looks pretty uh, pretty interesting. And uh, I saw some uh, uh, DxO uh, mark sort of information come through, which is one of the the uh, measurements for just you know how good a um, uh, a camera is and how capable it is and um yeah apparently the um uh the p20 uh pro uh you know stands out at the at the top of of smartphones as far as the um uh the rankings are concerned if you're kind of curious around that aspect and you're, you're wondering what is this dxo mark um dxomark.com uh, is where you'll, where you'll see these rankings and um, yeah their top ranking at the moment is uh, the Huawei P20 Pro is coming in with a score of 109 uh, 102 is the Huawei P20 and then it steps down from there to um, the Samsung Galaxy S9 Plus mm-hmm. uh, Google Pixel 2 and the iPhone X kind of very very close together um, along with um Huawei's Mate 10 Pro, and then onto you know bunch bunch of others, uh, but it is interesting because I think yeah, a lot of people over the over the last uh, few years have um, yeah looked to these um, these these DxO uh, marks as sort of a reference for who's got the the best uh, camera. Um, I know that the uh, Google Pixel 2, which hasn't been sort of broadly available in New Zealand, has been you know one that's been a real standout for for some people in terms of being the best you know the best camera um, out there over over the last little while. So uh, kind of interesting to see you know quite a big jump in terms of score for this new phone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, rather um, rather rather interesting. And you know this is a brand that you know only sort of three or four years ago most people in New Zealand had, had never heard of uh, and uh, they they seem to be able to do um, you know better and better with each each new launch you know I think in the past each time they'd announce a phone it was sort of yeah it was interesting and the the key standout was they were releasing a phone that you know 
uh, competed with with the with the Samsung and Apple phones, but was always a bit of a step back in you know in in a, in a number of areas. It wasn't as though you'd look at it and go, oh, that, that's definitely better. Uh, but with um, yeah, this this particular uh, area, the photography area, it seems like well, maybe they're um, they are actually uh, going to lead the pack for a little while. You know what was most interesting uh, that I read about it was about fifty percent of their presentation when they announced it was about this camera. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point that you uh, you kind of questioned before the the why. Uh, you know, it, it makes me think. You know, um, you know, most of what I've read about it is how good this camera is at taking photos at night. And, it, and I had exactly the same reaction framed in a different way, which is who is the customer for this? Mm-hmm. Like, who is so interested? and taking good photos at night and I wonder whether it might be my young professional millennials who are, who are out late at night in bars or whatever in low light bars or 18 year old girls at clubs who want to take really really good photos in the club in these low light situations because I mean it is pretty impressive the, the, the difference it, can, it, it uh, has at taking photos at night compared to the, the next lowest one but yeah. I'm, I probably err on your side uh, Brendan about well who really needs this but um, that's I'm not sure how much of an edge use case that is I don't know if I'm just out of touch as not part of your younger generation uh, or if you know maybe they've done the, the research and, and they feel that purchases are driven by a certain age group with a certain desire for certain camera capabilities or if they're just so desperate to differentiate a fairly commoditized product that they're going well i gotta frame this with something so night photos yep that'll do it i don't know but yeah it it is it is an interesting one um you know i guess for for me it's it's that thing about i do want to be able to take i do like having good photos and you know part of that is because i'm going to use the photos or video that's going to go online. Um, I you thought know, you were going to say it's because you've got a son. <laughs> well, you know, part of that is, your, you know, your family type uh, situations. Part of that is work-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I take a lot of photos, you know, and especially with the technology now where you can, you know, hold the hold the button or the, you know, virtual button down, the shutter down on your screen, and you can take 100 photos in, you know, five seconds, uh, you know, or 10 seconds pretty pretty easily. So you can then pull out the best shot. And, uh, you know, I think there are there are a bunch of people who do, you know, really enjoy having having a really good camera. Um, but I guess it's not, it's not necessarily everybody. Uh, the zoom lens I found pretty handy because, yeah, often, you know, let's say whether it's that you're at a, you know, a music event, you're at a show, oh, yeah. and you kind of want to get that person on stage, but you're actually not in the front row. Uh, you know, if you don't have a zoom lens, and you're mostly just going to see the crowd. You, you know, typical sort of you know uh, camera phone sort of shot from a from a concert. Yeah, you might you might be able to kind of see the broader the broader stage, but you might not end up with a very good you know shot of who's on the stage and so on. So the idea of the zoom lens, that sort of that sort of thing, yeah, you know, is is good. Um, look, I'm really curious as to how good these these uh, the cameras are going to get. Are we able to get to a point where even with the the size and the lens limitations of a smartphone, do we end up with something that's as good as what your digital SLR uh, has you know in the past taken with a good zoom lens? Do you end up with that in your in your pocket if we look sort of five years out? Um, so, yeah. uh, the question for you is, as the photographer in the room, um, do are these incremental like this particular release? Is this an incremental improvement on the last best thing, or is it a landmark shift? And, and are we are there any landmark shifts left to have, or are they just continual small incremental improvements with a nice price tag each time? 
I, I think, I mean, mostly what, what we're seeing now in the smartphone world are those incremental, you know, changes. The, you know, we used to talk about a, a sort of a steep innovation curve mm. uh, or, you know, innovation line, and that's, you know, very much has sort of, you know, cur- curved off to a degree. Um, but there are, there are areas where we're starting to see, you know, a bit more of a focus and, the, you know, the camera is certainly one of those areas where it is an area where... I mean, Samsung just done it with the Galaxy, you know, S9 and, and S9 Plus. They were very much focusing in on the, on the camera. They didn't change, you know, a whole lot in the rest of their phone. They already had actually a pretty good phone that's waterproof and wireless charging and those sorts of things. Um, you know, we've had this move to the sort of screens that are, yeah, virtu- virtually edge to edge, and the P20 sort of takes a, an iPhone 10 style approach where there's a bit of a you know chunk out of it at the at the top, so they can go you know up to the the top edge, which you know I think people have different opinions on uh, uh, on that particular approach, but you know allows them to uh, um, you know put a speaker in there and a and, and a camera and so on. Um, yeah, but most most of these things are are, are certainly incremental. And we've got a good amount of competition, which does keep it keep it pretty interesting, right? And of course, what we're seeing now in a, a one to two thousand dollar phone, uh, that will be not long before that's normal in a five hundred dollar phone, and then a two hundred and fifty dollar phone, and yeah. you know, eventually, what you'll be able to buy for hundred dollars will be what you know right now is um, is a two thousand dollar purchase, right? And that's kind of what what we've got quite uh, quite quite used to now. I don't know how long that takes mm. with these particular uh, capabilities, or whether we, you know it'll be normal to have three cameras and in, in every every phone very soon. But uh, I'm certainly not going to complain about it. No. And I guess the nature of innovation is that it's incremental until it's not. And somebody comes up with the the next greatest thing that solves a latent need that we didn't even know we had. Um, you know, and eventually, who knows what um, smartphones and iPads are going to come out with and whether we have holograms projected above them and that's the mm-hmm. way we communicate and, um, you know, these these kinds of things. So, I mean, is that the next wave? Or we don't necessarily know what the next wave is, but I, don't, I wouldn't call this a, a, a revolution in, mm-hmm. in, in photography. One, one of the areas that we are, that we are seeing that is, um, I guess we're probably just scratching the surface on, is... Um, AI, artificial intelligence element that's starting to be uh, a component of, particularly of the photography side of a um, of a smartphone, and so yeah, that that will probably be a key part of delivering those incremental uh, improvements. As you've got something that actually is figuring out as a as a pro photographer would what settings and what changes uh, can be made and I've seen some reference and of course I haven't had hands on it myself yet um, to this idea of being able to actually uh, with with these new phones from Huawei being able to take a four second photo which you, you can imagine uh, anyone that's familiar with photography leaving a lens open for four seconds especially at at night the sort of you know movement and so on that you would get from your shaky hand um, and what a mess that photo would be but if maybe you were pointing it at a motorway where there's you know cars coming past or something you might get some cool you know wavy lines of the lights on the cars um, but they've uh, they've come up with something that allows it to basically do sort of a capture over four seconds 
and then the AI to sort of piece all of that mm. together into a, apparently a really, really nice mm. um, shot. So um, the the aspects of what artificial intelligence sort of brings into photography, that could be the missing link that allows a, a smartphone to, to ultimately deliver a better result than, for instance, a, a, certainly a standard SLR, uh, you know, pre-digital and, and even, a, you know, a, a, um, a digital SLR that doesn't have, say, those artificial intelligence sort of capabilities built into it. So I think there's, there's still a few interesting developments ahead. So, yeah. I'm I'm most looking forward to the connectivity of of Siri and the the, the virtual assistants. I mean, we were just talking um, before we came on air about Green Acres and Hire Hubby that have that are launching this kind of Uber type platform where you can can order a cleaner from your smartphone. I, I can imagine you know sitting at my desk and being like, oh gosh, my parents in law are coming over tonight. Hey Siri, book a cleaner to come in, and then um, the door automatically unlock because you know we've we've talk- Siri's gone and sorted it all out. I mean, that's probably another of the um, um, oh look! And Siri's just turned on when I said Siri <laughs> uh, on my iPad. Yeah. Um, you know, like I think that again is going to be the, the next wave where they, these are really lifestyle products. They're not phones. Mm. And well, part know, of an integrated ecosystem of essentially whatever ecosystem you've bought into, whether that's you know Amazon or Google or Apple or whatever, mm. everything's an extension of the same or an element of the same ecosystem. Just where it is and whether you've got it on you. Mm. But, mm. Yeah, certainly some interesting things coming ahead, and of course. Ed, you know, I have to look forward a little bit further and say, well, look, it's just going to handle it for me, and I don't, I won't need to, I won't need to be thinking about that scenario. The AI is just going to handle it; it's going to book it, and of course, it will be the robotic cleaner that's going to come and 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 do the work. And um, yeah, there's going to be um, there's going to be nobody involved. Yeah. Oh, can I, can no, I do it? I'm just, I don't want to scare people. I was going to say, though, have you seen, um, the, the, there's been a lot that I've read because one, one of my clients is, um, is a vacuum manufacturer and I've just come out with the most amazing robotic vacuum. Like, well, I, they still haven't sent one for a review, Ed. I don't know oh, what, yeah. what's going on. Haven't they had Roombas for a long time? Yeah, no, this one's trying. Oh, I could talk to you for 20 minutes about, about this, but we'll... Uh... Well, well, it's Electrolux, wasn't it? We'll have to get them to send across their, um, their, their uh, robotic vacuum cleaner so we can, uh, we can talk about it on the show. Um, now, we must move on because we've got a few other topics to, uh, to get through. Now, a, a, there's been a lot uh, going on around autonomous vehicles in, in the last few days. Um, you know, there was the, the unfortunate accident uh, in the US that's um, caused Uber to pull out of testing their autonomous uh, vehicles after somebody passed away. Uh, Then just in the last week, uh, Tesla uh, had one of their vehicles uh, involved. It was a a Tesla Model X in a a fatal um, crash where the the driver has passed away and uh, they've they've advised that um, their autopilot capability was uh, was turned on at the time. Uh, it was also alerting the the user to put their hands back onto the um, you know to be back in control uh, because their autopilot isn't such that you're supposed to go to sleep or or anything just yet. Uh, but this does really sort of stir stir things up a a little bit in in this field where. Um, you know, certainly, all the all the stats we were being told about in the past were that uh, the technology is already safer than uh, than human drivers. So, does this prove that it's not though? Uh, what I haven't seen yet is any sort of analysis of, of um, 
automated or, or autonomous vehicles on the road uh, and the, the crashes that have been experienced with those cars, you know, proportionate on a proportionate basis as opposed to crashes in the same period with obviously driven cars. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I've, we talked last week about some suggestion that uh, um, autonomous or semi-autonomous now could be as much as 10 times more dangerous than human drivers. Um, that, that was just one figure that got bandied around, and um, I, haven't, I haven't seen any other coverage on, on that particular figure. I've still seen more over the last week saying, look, it, it, it still uh, is safer, and I think uh, you know, Tesla are, are one of those that have, that have come out and sort of said, look, at the moment these capabilities do make their vehicles uh, you know, safer than those without their autopilot uh, capability, and that you should still have your, you know, hands on the steering wheel and your eyes on the road. The very, you know, the m- most of the time, uh, it is there to, you know, to assist you rather than replace you. Um, at this stage, um, now the other, the other bit of news, uh, and I saw this sort of popping up on. Um, uh, YouTube because there were a bunch of um, uh, videos from Waymo that uh, came out and Waymo being the sort of sister company to uh, to Google uh, and you know they have a, you know very impressive sort of track record with their technology which you know 10 years or so in development and um, uh, yeah they, they've they've basically announced a, um, a partnership with uh, Jaguar with their new iPace which by all accounts is a pretty uh, incredible uh, vehicle sort of when put sort of side by side with Tesla's uh, Model X a pretty worthy uh, competitor uh, you know really nice uh, electric vehicle with a long range uh, and with them doing a deal with Waymo um, this could be pretty interesting and uh, talk of by um um, by 2020, that there would be, uh, would be talking 20,000 of these on the road uh, with Waymo's technology uh, installed. So basically operating as full uh, autonomous taxis. Which I think they're saying equates to 1 million autonomous vehicle rides per day uh, in the US. If they, I mean, if they can, if they can, and and I, you know, I guess if you don't have to have somebody driving them, then you know, the idea of a of a vehicle doing doing fifty trips a day is uh, probably not too unreasonable, right? So I guess then the question comes down to the regulatory response. I mean, in Sydney the other day, I was I was in an Uber and realised there's a dollar surcharge per fare that goes to um, compensate the taxi union uh, for essentially lost revenue. And so that's a way of, of, I guess, adjusting over time to the changing landscape that Uber's introduced. And I wonder, particularly when you're working in a place like Australia where there's you know, several, well, there's seven state and, and uh, territory governments to get rules and regulations passed, how would full autonomous vehicles over a number of ride-sharing platforms or ride-sharing, is that even the right term anymore? I don't know, just yeah. autonomous <laughs> car rides. Yeah. Uh, you know, what will be the response? Uber will probably have to either keep pace or change its model or fight as the taxis have fought is. It'll be quite a weird um, weird change and really tricky regulatory framework because jobs are obviously going to go. Um, also, I'm sure there'll be some created, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's going to be so interesting to see how this is adopted and how quickly.
that's almost criminal that they're charging an extra dollar per per ride to go to the taxi unions. You know, I mean, what value are the taxi unions possibly providing with it? You know, to earn that extra dollar per transaction. Well, I think the issue is that the government, <laughs> yeah, the government uh, charged a lot of money for taxi licenses, like a lot of money, basically a second mortgage, and the concept that they almost became not worthless, but significantly devalued the moment the government gave Uber the green light meant that the taxi union fought on the basis, and I'm paraphrasing and, and I'm not necessarily saying I agree with sure. the argument, but, but their, their argument was you've devalued something that you sold to us. You've now got to compensate us for lost income and also the money that you've essentially taken away, the asset that you've devalued. Um, so um, there's the argument. And yeah, I mean, they had, I think they've had some similar challenges in the, in the US where I think, you know, New York, uh, you know, cabbies, uh, you know, the the medallions that they would, mm. um, uh, you know, would be their 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 right to be a, uh, a a cabbie, you know, some of those, you know, hundreds of thousands of of, of dollars, um, you know, j- just for your right to actually drive before you actually start doing anything, and then uh, you know, ride sharing services just roll into town and buy <laughs> bypass the whole thing. So yeah, there there are some some challenges to work through, and we've seen that being responded to in different ways all over all over the world. Um, and look, this is going to stir things up further. I think we've got to look at what are the positive out you know outcomes of of um, you know automation. AI, robotics, so we get the best outcomes for society. Um, but you know, in, in general, I'm you know I'm reasonably positive in terms of where we're gonna where we're gonna go with these things. Um, another uh, another bit of news that uh, that came up in the same space, or a couple of things. One is that uh, Apple. Uh, apparently now has more self-driving test vehicles uh, in California than uh, Waymo, which is is interesting. So um, they've got something like uh, 45 autonomous test vehicles um, registered with uh, California's Department of of Motor Vehicles, uh, which is, I think, virtually... um, double what it was well, up from 27 so it, it, you know it, it's a reasonable jump from uh, uh, from from January and of course Waymo now have focused a lot of their testing on uh, on Arizona who have you know really really encouraged uh, this uh, the, you know the, the testing of autonomous vehicles so kind of uh, interesting interesting to note um, actually I saw one of Waymo's autonomous vehicles when I was in um, uh, in Silicon Valley in uh, in December uh, but maybe maybe because um, I had Selena filming out of the window of the uh, uh, the rental car we were in the guy made sure his hands were were squarely uh, on on the, wheel, <laughs> on the steering wheel by the time I looked um, they, they maybe yeah didn't, didn't want too much uh, Extra uh, attention, um, particularly if the distraction of us filming them had caused them to crash into us or something. Um, but yeah, look, it's it's a it's very interesting space. Uh, Apple, what we do know is, uh, well, in terms of what they've said publicly, is they're focusing on uh, on the software side, mm-hmm. not on building their own uh, vehicles, which is 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 curious. And uh, you know, I think it was yeah, maybe yeah, sometime in the last couple of years. Yeah, we heard news of Apple sort of laying off a bunch of people in, in that space, but they are still working on it um, 
software-wise. The other bit of uh, bit of news that sort of links a, a little bit into this whole picture um, is Uber shutting down their on-demand um, delivery service called Uber Rush, mm. uh, which they started in New York back in 2014. And yeah, I I really thought this you know probably made uh, you know made a fair bit of sense for uh, Uber to be you know offering offering more services. And when I look at their um, their competition, who they've just um, they've just sold out to um, in Asia in the or in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, Grab, uh, which started out as Grab Taxi, I remember looking at their app when I was in uh, the Philippines last year, and they must have had about ten different options in the in the app, which included a courier service and you know all sorts of other things. You know, rent a car and a driver for a, a day, which is quite common in, in some of the the Asian uh, you know countries um, as a as a guide and a translator and and so on. But all of these options, and it yeah, seems like Uber. Uh, maybe starting to focus in on on you know where their best areas are to operate. Um, that said, I've used Uber on numerous occasions, and not just in New Zealand, as a courier service. Mm. Uh, you know, when I was in LA um, some some months ago, and I needed to get a package across town. Uh, I was very hopeful that the Uber driver was going to say yes to my request to go and pick it up and to bring it to me rather than me having to actually do the return uh, journey myself. And, you know, I wasn't too sure because, uh, you know, you, maybe some people might be fearful that I'm trying to get them to pick up some sort of package of drugs mm-hmm. or something dodgy. <laughs> uh, but there was, you know, no such fear, and the guy was more than happy to go on, you know, go and uh, pick something up and, and ferry it across town to me. It was probably about a 90-minute journey because of the, the shocking traffic in, in LA uh, but of course it saved me three hours so uh, you know it panned out rather you know rather well um, but they've decided to exit that um, you know actually having that as a as an official um, service so you know maybe it just didn't gain the sort of traction that they were uh, that they were hoping for it probably comes down to price point as well I think the price point on Uber Rush was about five dollars whereas if you compare that to Uber Eats where they're first of all getting a six dollar delivery fee and then a 30 percent margin uh, on the on the food itself you know it's probably a lot more profitable for them mm. Yeah. Mm. having said that once it's established you know the the software's there the 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 layers created uh, the overlay what's What's the, the continued overhead? What's the, the the cost to them of maintaining that service? That's, I mean, is there an administrative backend? Or is there, you know, it's not like they've got an asset base that's acting as the couriers in this case. It's drivers who are already out there. So I guess I'm just not sure about what the the loss was if there was a loss, or is it just a strategic play where they've decided to narrow their focus given all the competition around them? Well, there was another company in this space called um, Ship S H Y P um, who recently exited the, the space, and they, uh, you know, they they'd grown uh, they'd grown reasonably quickly, but then they downsized back to uh, just the San Francisco uh, Bay area. And that, you know, apparently it put them into sort of a cash positive um, position. But when they, I think they basically ran it, they ran out of funding. No one was willing to back them and they just didn't have the growth that they expected. So, you know, from Uber's perspective, they want to be doing something where, you know, there's a really big market for them rather than being in this space that, you know, maybe these couriers was, it was just too small. Lots of existing players and business models that were, that were already working reasonably well uh, for, for most people. So, 
you know, why would people bother changing if it didn't deliver them a, a, a big benefit? So, you know, why would Uber mm-hmm. spend too much time and, and you know, mind share on it? Um, but the ship one was quite interesting. In fact, the, uh, the, the, the founder of it um, put up a really interesting uh, post online uh, sharing basically sharing his uh, his journey and, and the whole process where, where they went wrong. Um, uh, Kevin Gibbon is the name of the, the founder and CEO, um, but uh, Ship had something like a quarter of a billion US dollar uh, valuation uh, and 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 now they're gone. Should have sold um, out then, eh? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very... Um, very interesting just to see you know what things do do stick and um, yeah we're still in still in that place where you know, even startups that, are, that attract you know huge backing uh, sometimes don't uh, don't get it right and and certainly you know I read um, uh, Kevin Gibbons um, you know blog post about it and it was um, uh, yeah it's, it's, it's pretty interesting it was pretty uh, transparent around uh, around some of the challenges and the steps that he thought he made uh, made wrong along the way. So those that are uh, you know working startups, or your founder, you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, that one that one's well worth uh, well worth a read. Is that going to be in the show notes, Paul? Um, I will try and remember to put that in the show notes, Ed. I will will try and uh, do that. Uh, now that's um, probably enough on. Uh, autonomous vehicles. Now, one other thing which we don't really have time to sort of dive too deeply on, um, I alluded to it at the beginning, um, it is this new DNS service. Now, for those who are wondering what a DNS service is, and look, we, we know we have a mix of listeners, so some of you will be sitting there sniggering and going, how can anybody listening to the show not know what uh, DNS service is? Um, in simple terms, it's kind of for, for those of us who are at least a little bit older. Anyway, it's sort of uh, like a um, uh, what the yellow pages used to be, for, or the the white pages for for looking things up. Uh, it's it's what converts a, a domain name. So if you were to go to www.nztechpodcast.com, uh, that's what behind the scenes converts that to a, an IP address so you can actually find the web server where it's hosted or if you're emailing uh, and so on. So, um, But the new service is designed to be faster than... Um, than existing providers of uh, of DNS, and anybody with an internet connection uh, has a DNS uh, service that they connect to, basically to find out how to uh, connect to things. Of course, it's all behind the scenes, and mostly, uh, yeah, the average user of the internet doesn't doesn't realise what's going on, but it all happens. Um, and it's designed to be faster than uh, than current uh, services, and also secure. So. Um, yeah, I guess there's you know some people have um, and especially with some of the things that's been in the media over the, over the last uh, la- last few weeks, but you know have concern around who would know what websites they've been visiting, who they've been emailing, and so on. Um, so uh, this this new service is is designed uh, as one that's uh, that's very secure, and they you know basically don't keep long-term records beyond you know i think maybe 24 hours on um you know on where you've been so this is a service from uh cloudflare uh, who've been around for a number number of years and have a mix of sort of you know free and and uh and and paid services um and yeah looks looks uh looks rather interesting um it will depend which internet service provider 
that you're uh, using in New Zealand probably in terms of what sort of performance you'd get out of them. Uh, but if you're interested, take your web browser to 1.1.1.1 uh, and, uh, and you have a, have a look about it there. I um, also saw a bit of a thread going on uh, on GeekZone talking about it. So um, you know, if you really wanted to delve into the, the technical nitty-gritty, there's uh, interesting discussion on there. Uh, now, Vocus. Uh, now we know Vocus have been on the on the market uh, for for a little while, or Vocus uh, New Zealand uh, have been on the market for a little while, and um, you know they're the the company behind a, a number of um, internet service pro- providers uh, locally, such as um, um, Orcon and, and Core Plus that, that they own. Um, there's been uh, a little bit of news around. Um, what what might be happening uh, with them from uh, from a, a purchase uh, perspective, and it's um, is it a certain uh, power company, Trust Power, might be uh, mm. might be ju- jumping in there and and looking um, at acquiring them. Um, Brendan, look, I'm interested in um, in your thoughts on on this one. As as I mentioned earlier, usually pretty uh, opinionated with your uh, your blog posts around uh, what's happening in the in the in the telco world. What's your thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting for a couple of reasons. But big picture backstory for anyone listening: uh, Vocus Australia is essentially a company that grew through acquisition in New Zealand and Australia, and also through a couple of mergers with Amcom, a big WA player, and, and M2, another large uh, Australian provider, which had at that time already bought uh, a couple of New Zealand companies. So massive, very fast tracked uh, number of acquisitions. None of them integrated very well. Started to realize that, oh God, what have we done? We've, we've bought so much, not integrated it. The cost of, of fixing this issue saw a, a massive downgrade, a profit downgrade of over $100 million. They brought in a, a guy who specialized in fixing these kind of, of uh, post-acquisition issues around integration, and he lasted three months. And eventually they went, right, let's sell the New Zealand base then. And that's about a five or $400 million um, revenue uh, base for them per year. They came up with a price. They wanted five hundred million. Turns out it's looking more like two fifty. At which point, I'm left asking: when they've got debt of over a billion dollars, what does a two hundred fifty dollar million sale really achieve? It probably just writes off the goodwill on their balance sheet. Do they actually get to benefit from this other than no longer having the integration headache? But that headache is probably what devalued it from five hundred to two fifty. So. In the event that Trust Power purchases uh, what is essentially a collection of very separate companies, you've got Slingshot, Two Talk, FX, Call Plus, um, others I'm missing. They've got a lot of work ahead of them. I know Maxnet. I'm fairly sure I'm, I'm right in saying this from what I've heard, but has a standalone CRM that was built in house and is seven years old and has no integration. So that's an example of how standalone they are. There is no building. and that's quite a common, you know, it, common it scenario with businesses, isn't it? That, it is. That it can be quite can be quite hard to you know acquire one entity and another, put them together and and get them onto the same platform. Absolutely. Um, although there 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 is an interesting discussion on our latest episode of the New Zealand Business Podcast where uh, we hear about an acquisition that was done uh, very quickly. Um, and I'll, I'll mention that one at the, at the end of this episode anyway, but that might be something people are curious about. Key thing is Trust Power uh, are a really good operator and I'm sure they've got a good plan around this and at 250 it's a good option for them and uh, in my view they're making a good move. I'm not sure it's as, as worthwhile for Vocus, but that's obviously um, the, the direction they're going. The... 
Um, the interesting thing, I guess, is, is going to be them operating in the business space. There's a large residential base there that they can sell power products into, which is great. And that fits their current business practice. And, and we'll see them have a, a greatly reduced churn and, and, and certainly below market norms. But in the business space, they currently really don't sell much. So this is going to be a whole new foray into a new market segment for them. And I'll be really interested to see uh, interested to see how, how they structure that, the team they appoint to do it. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting end to 2018 as all that plays out. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of curious. I mean, we've we've had some of the um, uh, folks from Vocus on you know on the show over you know from from time to time, um, and yeah, always been interesting to hearing you know some of the bits and pieces that they're they're up to. Um, but it, yeah, it can be an awkward being in a position where it's it's reasonably public that you. You're up for sale, and uh, mm. you you know you'd be stuck in uh, in, in limbo for a uh, for a time. So, can I ask as well, Brendan? I know I read that um, both Spark and Vodafone wrote off quite early that they weren't going to make a bid for Focus, given that there were going to be um, th- there were going to be Commerce Commission concerns that uh, about building up um, monopoly sized organisations. Did that help to drive the price down, and th- and that's why the price is so low? I think Vodafone, my understanding was that even if they were to pick up uh, the entire Vocus New Zealand operation, their market share would still be just below that of Spark's current market share. So I I don't believe that they would have a huge regulatory hurdle to get past. That's that's my take on it. And I think that they were one of the bidders, is, again, my understanding, um, but just weren't successful. Um, No idea why. Um, Spark, I believe, also... Put, I mean, they've publicly stated they want to grow through acquisition as opposed to organic growth. They see it as lower cost. Um, but they uh, were unsuccessful, not because they saw it as an issue themselves, but the vendor saw it as an issue. They saw that the, the regulatory hurdles in the case that they, um, you know, they chose them as their preferred purchaser would slow down the settlement, would drag it out. And, and that's why they essentially weren't the final, uh, in the final three. So that's the take I've got on it. Had to be happy to be corrected, but. Um, I think Spark would have been lucky to get away with ComCom approval um, for what it's worth mm. because I would have seen them go close to, I think, 60% market share in the res space, which is pretty significant. But, yeah, they've got a pretty significant market share right now, yeah. um, you know, by far in the, in the strongest position. Um, look, one thing that we do like to do, um, especially when we've got a new guest on the, on the show, is just to hear a little bit about their firm and, and mm. where they work now. Um, you've been with Lightwire uh, for what, around? Um, year and a half. Yeah, yeah, year and a half. So, yep. Brendan, maybe you can just sort of, you know, fill us in a, a little bit on um, what's happening with, with Lightwire because Lightwire has oh. been around as an internet service provider for, you know, quite a number of years, uh, you know, known for, uh, yeah, particularly sort of rural and, and mm-hmm. wireless internet connectivity. Uh, but your background with with DTS, where you were prior, we are very much in the uh, the business um, sector. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what's Lightwire actually up to at the moment? Uh, well, as you as you touched on, um, ten years operating rural network throughout Waikato, and recently purchased, uh, or more recently purchased NetSmart, uh, which had a, a similar uh, fixed wireless network in the Bay of Plenty. And uh, that was probably 12 months ago now. So, yeah, over 5,000 connected uh, endpoints uh, on our Wi-Fi uh, fixed wireless network. Um, I came on a year and a half ago to establish and, and, and further drive our uh, presence in the business and channel space, uh, both in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, and uh, as part of that, we've, we've grown our team to 
somewhere in the range of about 50 now. Uh, we've got a head office in Hamilton, but we've got staff in Wellington, Auckland, Tauranga, Gold Coast. Um, and yeah, for us, it's, uh, it's, it's the usual telco um, offering of uh, you know, voice, internet, uh, managed hardware, uh, particularly managed security we're getting into more and more. Uh, we work with a lot of channel partners around the place that uh, refer business and uh, we also provide wholesale services. But uh, it's essentially being that... Uh, uh, having that pre-sales, uh, consultation, post-sales implementation, and uh, a largely New Zealand-based uh, help desk for level one, two, and three faults, and um, you know, making sure you're not in that horrible call center environment, getting a different person each time you call. So, uh, at this stage, pretty basic stuff. We've we've got a large development team working on giving greater access to uh, functionality and, and uh, information um, within our portals, and. Uh, get a glimpse of that through our SQ tool on our on our website if you if you board lightwhitebusiness.com and uh yeah read my blogs they're up there too so I should give that a plug uh, yeah. yeah yeah well I mean that's that's usually where I you know come up come across uh you know your your opinions tends mm. to be what you what you're sharing uh, um online so uh yeah I always 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 find those interesting and yeah it brings just brings uh you know sometimes a uh, you know, a, a different a different perspective, but you're usually fairly, uh, uh, yeah, open with what your thoughts are. <laughs> I think you're going to say usually pretty accurate, but no, just open. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. What is your blog? Uh, how do it's I access that? Just uh, go to lightwidebusiness.com and there's a blog on the top right-hand menu. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think everyone will have different, you know, different, different, different opinions on uh, well, on, all on your thoughts, and, and and depending on where they sit within the industry. But um, no, I always find it interesting anyway. Um, all right, well, that's uh, that's just about us for this episode. Now, I did mention um, a new episode of the New Zealand Business Podcast um, that's gone on online uh, up on you know wherever you you listen to your uh, podcasts. Um, I think in the last in the last twenty four hours or so, and that is a talk with um, David Sutherland, who uh, founded uh, Integral uh, Technology Group, and that was a business that he sold. Oh, be about uh, seven, uh, probably about seven, maybe even eight years ago uh, now for sixty four million dollars, and it sort of yeah talks through through his story. Um, you know how he got started in the tech world, how he built that business up, the different uh, acquisitions that he did, uh, like Axon, which was the last one he did before um, uh, before he sold the business, uh, and then it goes on to uh, his current uh, thing, which is right outside of the tech world, which is Woe Studios. Uh, but a re- really interesting chat, and I, I just had uh, it's taken a long time for this one to get online, uh, but I just had a listen to it in the last uh, last couple of days. And um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, pretty fascinating story. Uh, and we do now have uh, new episodes of the New Zealand Business Podcast going on weekly, and yeah, a fair chunk in there that uh, uh, will probably be of interest to uh, to people in the in the tech world. So like and subscribe. Yeah, that's the story. That's the story. So um, yeah, well, that's it for um, for us this week. Now, guys, where do we uh, where do we track? You? Where do listeners track you down? On online, Twitter or, or otherwise? Be, uh, best place for, for me is the good old LinkedIn. I think I'm Ed McKnight there, but it could also be Edward McKnight. I, I have my two little, that's my pseudonym. 
Um, and uh, also check out NZ Young Professionals Podcast. Um, dot, that is nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. Um, there's really, really interesting episodes on, on there. We were just talking before we came online that there, my favourite one is a 22-year-old who started a kid's costume business out of Hamilton. Great stories there. Um, or also, my email is ed at edmcknight.com. I always love to put it out there and just see who emails me. <laughs> you know, you get some interesting ones. You Challenge get, accepted. You get good ones, you get spam ones, you don't know what you're going to get. Well, one day I got this email from a guy that had been listening in, and his name was actually the same as yours, Ed McKnight, and he wanted to start a podcast. Oh, that was me. Oh, okay, that's right, that's right. And uh, hence why we have the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast. So that's what happens when you put your uh, your email um, out there. The question is, Brendan, are you willing to share your email address as well? Ah. Uh. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Made too many enemies over too long a period of time. Uh, no, um, but uh, LinkedIn is also good for me. Uh, Brendan with an A-N and Richie, R-I-T-C-H-I-E. And uh, B Comedy, at B Comedy on uh, Twitter. Um, although I tend to just basically retweet my blog links. So, uh, yeah, LinkedIn and uh, that'll do it, I think. Excellent. Mm. That's good. And yeah, people can track me down certainly through LinkedIn and uh, the various social networks. And if you want to get in, get in touch, um, you can certainly do so through um, paulspain.com as well. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you again next week. Thanks, Paul. Bye. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.